today we're going to talk a little bit more about the different theories of motor learning and so I can give you guys just a little bit more context and maybe background information as well as we're trying a new format today. We're trying podcasts versus YouTube videos so that you guys can play this more easily in the car while you're doing other activities. I know I get really frustrated because YouTube videos, you really have to sit down and watch them all the way through. Where podcasts, you can kind of have playing in the background. They're easier to jump back and forth through. So let's talk a little bit more about hierarchical theory. So hierarchical theory is essentially the top-down model. Again, it's kind of the second theory that evolved. Reflex theory was before hierarchical theory and reflex theory really was based upon basically having an outside stimulus to a muscle. There was no brain involvement. It was just activating muscle response at the level of the muscle. This was great for treating polio victims um, or individuals who were recovering from polio. However, it didn't really give a framework in order to treat individuals with um, cortical impairments or neurological dysfunction. And so hierarchical theory comes from therapists essentially being frustrated that neuromuscular re-education at the level of the muscle itself was not really having the impact that they wanted on patients with neurological dysfunction. So hierarchical theory is essentially that there's levels of control of movement. In the past, they had thought and kind of where hierarchical theory occurred was that there was a top-down motion. So pure hierarchical theory, which is what you're going to look at for test questions really, is that there is no input from the bottom up. It's all top-down and that they don't overlap. We know now with more science that obviously the neuromuscular system is more complex than that, but in the pure hierarchical theory, which think of this kind of as like a neural history class, if you will, especially in like this chapter, it is going to talk more about kind of that pure hierarchical theory. So pure hierarchical theory, again, is that the upper levels of the nervous system, so your brain, controls the lower levels of the nervous system. And when there is damage, essentially those upper systems are not able to control the lower outputs. And so things like abnormal reflexes, like the asymmetrical tonic neck reflex or the symmetrical tonic neck reflex. And the asymmetrical tonic neck reflex is when kind of the baby turns their head and they have like an outstretched arm on the um, in the direction of their head turn and a flexed arm. It kind of is like the um, bow and arrow pose and the symmetrical tonic neck reflex is when the kiddos, it's kind of in preparation for crawling. And when the kiddo extends their head, their arms also extend and their knees flex. So that is kind of in theory with the hierarchical and neurodevelopmental 
um, theories is that these reflexes kind of can help movement occur. So the symmetrical tonic neck reflex is the elbows are extended, the head is extended, the knees are flexed, and that will kind of prepare for crawling. And then when the neck is flexed, the arms are flexed and the legs are straightened so or extended. So the theory with the reflexes and the hierarchical theory regarding the reflexes is that these reflexes are only available when the cortical or kind of the cerebral hemispheres are damaged. So if you think of a kiddo who has a non-integrated um, ATNR or STNR, maybe they have cerebral palsy and there's damage at the cortical levels of the brain. These reflexes may still be present versus a kiddo who is developing these reflexes will have integrated at certain levels. So for example, so for example, the ATNR um, or the asymmetrical tonic reflex, which is that bow and arrow reflex, integrates by around six to seven months of age. Now, according to the hierarchical theory, if that reflex was present post that typical developmental age of six to seven months, then it would be an indicator that there was damage in the central nervous system. Others of other examples of this include the Babinski sign or clonus. And clonus and the Babinski sign are demonstrators of damage to the central nervous system. So if there's damage, the hierarchical theory explains that the damage, the reflex is present because these higher cortical levels are not inhibiting those abnormal reflexes. So for example, clonus is when you do a quick dorsiflexion of um, an individual that has damage to the central nervous system and the ankle goes into quick bouts of plantar flexion. And then the Babinski sign is with like um, a bare foot, you um, have kind of a sharp stimulus to the outside of the foot and the um, big toe and the other toe splay or kind of separate um, in kind of a unique posture. And you guys can see um, examples of that in the course resources, and I'll put them also in the chapter one Blackboard folder so that they're kind of all together with this material. So those are just further examples of the hierarchical theory and the concept that if there is damage to the CNS, these reflexes will be present longer than they're supposed to. Um, developmentally. So again, the ATNR reflex is supposed to integrate by six to seven months. If it does not, or it's still um, visible after that, it's saying that the corticalization of the brain at the cerebral level, at the motor cortex level up in the brain is not 
inhibiting those reflexes so there is damage at the upper levels. Now we'll talk a little bit more about the motor programming theory. Regarding the motor programming theory, so the motor programming theory is kind of that third theory. And what you can kind of gather is like this part of the scientific process and kind of where we are in space with the data that we have available to us. It's essentially kind of taking pieces of the reflex theory and the hierarchical theory and kind of molding them into this new theory that basically pulls together like some central nervous system components and then some reflex components. And it also brings and tries to kind of put together the central pattern generator data that is coming out where basically if you cut access to the sensory nervous sense or the peripheral nervous system through like the sensory input and you cut um, descending input from the brain, you can still produce this rhythmic movement such as locomotion or walking. So there's a couple of aspects about the motor programming theory that kind of come together. One of the biggest and main takeaways from this period of time in this programming theory is the central pattern generator, which is again, those autonomous neurons that kind of live in the spinal cord. And if you give movement through the legs, and you support an individual or an animal in a partial body weight supported system and hang them kind of over a treadmill that you can create movement and walking without sensory input and without brain input. So there is these kind of like little programs in the spinal cord that are isolated that can produce movement independently of um, input from the sensory system or input from the brain. So that is a definitely a central concept about the motor programming theory. Um, but it also is a little bit wider than just the central pattern generator. And it does also talk about having these motor programs in the brain. So it's starting to try to figure out, okay, we're learning more about the brain, and as we get into chapter three, um, we learn more about kind of the motor cortex. And so as we keep going through this content, it's really going to build on each other. So it's a little bit tough to kind of really feel like you have a good grasp of all this information right now, specifically because it's it's more of a bite-sized introduction chapter and it's going to build again. So don't get frustrated if you really are having a hard time conceptualizing this information. It's going to start kind of um, simmering under the surface, kind of start all coming together as we continue to learn more about like how the brain works and how we um, learn and produce movement. So again, motor programming theory is going to talk about motor programs as well as the central pattern generator. So it's kind of two components to this theory. And the motor programs are essentially the thought that there is being stored information about how to produce movement in the brain. And you can look at this movement very simply between doing a functional movement on your right hand and then doing it on your left hand. 
there are gonna be similarities in the way, for example, like how you write your name, maybe throw a ball. You're gonna have similarities in this move in these movement patterns, but you're, it's they're not gonna be complete carbon copies, right? So you're gonna have similarities in the way you write your name if you write it on your right hand, but if you're right hand dominant, it's going to have more precision than if you write it on your left hand. But the way that you create your letters, maybe the way you create your A or the way you do um, a line, whether you go top down, which is the more efficient way to create a straight line or bottom up, depending on how you learned how to formulate letters, that is going to be similar from hand to hand. And the thought process is that those similarities are due to a central nervous system brain motor programming, if you will. The last kind of big takeaway of the motor programming theory is this concept of the central pattern generators having the ability to do really complex movements, including transitioning from walking, trotting to galloping based on the velocity of the like treadmill or surface that is helping to produce those movements. So for example, if you have a um, individual in a supported, body weight supported lift and they are over a treadmill, Again, without any sensory input from the uh, peripheral nervous system and without any top-down input from the brain, you can actually produce different movement patterns based on the velocity of the surface that is sending kind of input to the central pattern generators. And again, it's really kind of tough to explain because we also are still learning about this theories such as kind of the central pattern generators in general. So we're again not 100% sure how this movement is occurring, but what we do know is that if you increase the velocity of the treadmill, the individual or the animal can go from walking to trotting to kind of galloping slash like running um, just based on the activity and the input that is occurring and somehow getting to that central pattern generator, which is super unique. One way that you can actually utilize this in the clinic or in the school district, if you're work working with kiddos, is if you have a kiddo that's in a supported gait trainer, such as a pacer gait trainer, um, which is like kind of a box, it's like a box, and then it has support. I'll upload a picture of this to the uh, chapter one information, but they're essentially very similarly supported. A lot of times they have a saddle, so their pelvis is supported and they have trunk support, upper trunk, maybe even some mid trunk, lower trunk, depending on how long the trunk support is. And what you can do is if you don't have access to a treadmill for this partial weight bearing treadmill training, you can actually stick your booty on a scooter and bring the kiddo into a hallway or into a room and place their feet 
into each pat each cycle of of the gait pattern so i have done this with kiddos where i'm essentially with my hands putting their foot into a kind of forward foot position and then giving them a stride length or a stance length and then bringing their contralateral foot into swing phase and then placing it in front of the other foot. And that's actually how we're walking. And my hope is essentially by utilizing this theory and utilizing some hand over hand and motor planning that there is information coming from the movement, the passive or active assisted movement of their limbs going to their brain working on creating an abstract motor program via the motor programming theory in order to get them to buy into or learn how to produce movement on their own. A lot of times when you work with kiddos, especially kiddos that are dependent and have had a really hard time moving their limbs due to weakness, um, synergies in the sense of like a flexor synergy or in a full extension synergy, which are not ideal um, in a functional manner. These kiddos will essentially have learned helplessness where they don't really understand how to move their bodies. They're inefficient at it. And so they don't really show an internal desire to want to move and explore their environments. And that really decreases their ability to kind of learn and grow both motor-wise, cognitive-wise, kind of the whole nine yards. And so by taking their feet and actually placing their feet over and over again, a lot of repetition, and it's really hard work. Like it is exhausting to do that for 60 minutes with a kiddo or even 30 minutes and you're placing their foot and you're trying to get them engaged and you're um, talking to them and really pouring a lot of energy into these kiddos. But the cool part is, is these kiddos can actually start learning like, oh, I can push through this leg and propel myself forward. Oh, this is kind of cool. It will likely look really not pretty at first and really inefficient, but there's so much value in allowing someone to understand that I can affect change and I can actually move my body from one place to another that really starts to kind of drive that growth factor. So that is one way that I utilize that motor programming theory in the clinic or really in the school district. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit more about system theories, kind of some of the big takeaways with the systems theories. The system theory is really just looking at the body as a mechanical system. So as you guys learn about biomechanics and the physics of the human body, you're going to start learning about joint surfaces and how to mobilize joints. And like, for example, in the ankle, if you want to improve dorsiflexion, because in order to dorsiflex the ankle, the talus needs to go backwards or in a posterior direction. If dorsiflexion is tight with a tight um, end feel of like a capsular restriction end feel when you do a mobilization or a pivum, passive intervertebral motion, you're going to then potentially choose to mobilize the talus on the tibia slash fibula 
into a posterior direction to then improve dorsiflexion. So in doing so, you are looking at the ankle or the whole body as a mechanical system. And that degree of freedom that you are trying to free, if you will, by a joint mobilization at the ankle is just one move, one piece of the movement available. So in systems theories, you're really looking at how all of the joints work together and then how those muscles then control those joints. So for example, in the YouTube video that I sent, when the individual was throwing with their dominant hand, it was very smooth, very controlled. There was more trunk rotation. They were able to kind of time where each joint was in order to make the movement really efficient and more powerful, right? So if you're going to throw a ball and you're right-handed, right-hand dominant, you're going to rotate backwards so you get full external rotation slash kind of shoulder extension slash kind of right rotation of the trunk. So you really get that ball behind your head and then you're gonna throw it and as you come through, you're gonna have motion at your trunk going into left rotation. You're gonna have motion at your shoulder blade complex your scapulothoracic joint, actually kind of moving into almost like an abducted adducted position slash kind of upward rotation, if you will. Um, and then you're going to internally rotate at the shoulder as, you know, your elbow's extending, as your wrist is in extension, going into flexion, as your fingers curl around, and it's gonna be this beautiful like symphony of movements. And that is what you would consider like optimal coordination of movement because it's the process of mastering all of those degrees of freedom that are possible, right? So as you go to throw and you wanna have this optimal movement, there are all of these pieces that have to be in place and that have to be controlled by specific muscles at the same time in order to create that movement. Where if you have a task that you're learning about, it's not gonna have that quality of coordination between the joints. And so, because you're just learning it, you haven't mastered it, you haven't done it enough, you haven't um, really put that well in there deep enough to really understand like, okay, this is, this is how everything fits together in order to make this task the most efficient as possible. And so you're going to be stiffer. You're going to, things aren't going to be timed as well. So if you throw with your left hand, like, you know, your wrist and fingers might go into flexion at the same time instead of incrementally to really get that ball placed in the most accurate position possible. You might have less rotation on the left side in your trunk because you're just not used to rotating that far or in that position. It's like, it's kind of unnatural for you. Um, and so 
all of those things put together are going to be more difficult, if you will. And so they're going to be stiffer, harder to move, harder to control. Um, And so then if you look at a mastered technique, it's going to be more fluid. Again, like kind of skiing or watching um, a performance like a dancer, right? They are able to move almost like slowly, but in order to move and slow down that motion, you need such control over all of those degrees of freedom or like joint movement that you have to be so masterful at dance in order to control that motion, control that gravity, in order to produce almost like the space between the movements, which is really what pulls the audience in and makes it look effortless, even though we all know it definitely is not. The other part about systems theory that's really important is just kind of understanding that a change in one parameter of a task can change that task into essentially a new task, which is that concept of nonlinear behavior, which is it transforms into essentially a new configuration when a single parameter of that behavior is gradually altered so and reaches a critical value. So this sometimes some of these added parts of a systems theory aren't necessarily, they don't seem to really fit in together, but it's kind of what the data was coming out at the time. So group these concepts together, even if they don't necessarily seem to fit piece to piece. It's just what the data and what learning was occurring at that time and new information that was coming out. So again, a nonlinear behavior is basically changing one parameter, like when you're walking and then you go to running and you have that change in velocity, or you go from like a single leg hop to jumping, which is essentially really kind of a change in power or that contraction of that muscle in order to produce more um, height, essentially. But like a single leg hop and then a jump to dunk a basketball are two very different behavioral states. The other thing that this theory, the systems theory, and really more of like the dynamic systems theory, which is kind of that example of like the walk to run is it's showing that really that there is a lot of variability in in movement itself and then it also talks about again kind of these attractor states or these deep well versus shallow well and it's really just showing that preferred patterns are harder to change and so this is just and more data that is kind of coming out that they kind of just put together into this theory during this specific time in the scientific world, if you will. And the biggest thing with the attractor wells of the deep versus shallow is just essentially habit formation. And you guys can can look at this specifically with your patients in the future or even looking at yourself how difficult it was to change a really embedded 
habit. So for example, say you want to go to bed at a certain time, but you're really used to going to bed at like 1030 and you want to say go to bed at nine because you want to get up early and work out because you know if you work out after work that you're just so exhausted and you keep lying to yourself and you're never actually potentially ever going to be able to do it. So what you want to do is change your environment so that you can be more successful. But in order to do that, you have to change a couple habits along the way. It's not just waking up in the morning to work out. It's also changing your bedtime and kind of figuring all that stuff out. So depending on how long and how emotionally invested you are and what activities you were doing from 9 to 10.30, changing that bedtime might actually be more difficult for you than just working out before work would be because it's going to impact each other, right? Like you might think that, okay, like I like working out in the morning, So adding this habit isn't going to be that big of a deal, but what you don't realize is you, if you wake up earlier, then you need to increase your bedtime um, or increase your sleep time, which shifts your bedtime up. And if those habits of like, well, from 9.30 or from 9 to 10.30 is my favorite TV show, you might have a really deep attractor well there. And so you might have to do a lot of work and figure out different ways to make it so that the thing that you really enjoy and the habit that you have and you find value in from 9 to 10.30 changes and kind of make that well essentially shallower by putting in other aspects like setting alarms or maybe recording your favorite show and finding a different time you can put put it into your schedule so that you're shifting these things so that you're more successful in creating this new habit and this new behavioral activity than you were before. And then when we're going to talk about ecological theory, there's not a ton of information in the chapter on ecological theory. The biggest takeaways are essentially to know that it is um, that movement is around performing a goal-oriented behavior and also how the environment and perception is utilized to make achieving that goal more efficient and how we're using the information that we're gaining from the environment in order to produce movement towards a specific goal. The other things that ecological theory kind of encourage us to understand is to describe the individual as an active explorer of their environment so that they develop multiple ways to accomplish a task. And we can really see this in kind of two ways when when we're adults as well as when we're kiddos. So we'll talk about kiddos first. Really having kiddos be able to have floor time and to explore their environment and really allowing them to try different things allows them a better ability to master a task. So they need all this variety and all this exploration to start to understand the world, understand how their body moves, and they need a ton of essentially kind of trial and error 
in order to figure out different ways to accomplish a task. And then as they figure out different ways to accomplish a task, some tasks will become more successful than others or some ways will become more successful than others. And they'll be able to adapt those successful ways of accomplishing a task or reaching their goal and start utilizing those more and more. And then when you're an adult, really having and allowing an individual to kind of try different ways to affect a goal in their environment. So maybe give them some space. Again, we'll learn more about this in chapter two, but not give them so much feedback that you're teaching them only one way because if they don't have the ability to start learning and perceiving the information in their environment, they may be able to do one specific task that you taught them, but they might not be able to transfer or adapt that behavior into a similar goal further down the road. So the ecological theory is really about being an active explorer in the environment and finding a lot of different ways to accomplish a specific task and getting information from the outside world and the environment and trying to adapt movements to that those perceived important aspects of our environment and important aspects of the task itself. And then if we talk a little bit about the task-oriented approach, which is kind of, I guess, the newest theory, if you will, um, and we just talked a little bit about it in the slides, but essentially it's using, it's honoring the fact that there are many different systems that each contribute to different aspects of control of movement. And that movement is organized around behavior goals and kind of constrained by an environment. It really looks at having a task-oriented approach to movement. So it pulls in some of those aspects of the ecological theory where that goal-oriented behavior is really important. It pulls in some information from the dynamic systems theory, which is, you know shows that there's many different systems that are all kind of working together. And it shows really, it's kind of looking at more purposeful movement and realizing that patients need to kind of learn by kind of attempting to solve some problems and then utilizing that in a functional task. So it is very similar kind of to the ecological approach, but it's almost whittling it down a little bit and then adding in some components of the dynamic systems theory and also that um, also some information from like the neurological theories as well saying that that basically if there is an upper motor neuron lesion that what emerges is kind of just the best mix of whatever systems remain to participate so it's so the way task-oriented approach and hierarchical theory would be different is say that there's an upper motor neuron lesion. So we have an individual with a stroke and they um, show that there is, you know, some, some weakness and they have... Um, some movement of their right arm, so they have a left upper motor neuron lesion or um, damage to their brain. 
Okay, so hierarchical theory would say that the movement that is available in that right arm is essentially reflexes that are not being subdued by the brain on the left side because it's because it's damaged. So whatever movement is available are essentially reflexes that are available now that the left side of the brain is not no longer inhibiting them. Where a task-oriented approach would say, okay, there's a lesion on the left side of the brain. The weakness or the available movement in the right arm is whatever systems are remaining participating. So essentially whatever is still active in the muscles, whatever innervation is still available, it's the rest of those systems that are kind of participating and that um, if there's, so then there might be compensations that might not always be optimal. So for example, your, so if you have weakness in your right arm and your shoulder flexors, you might integrate your scapular elevator. So your shoulder blade might come up to your ear in order for you to reach for something. In a hierarchical theory, that would be thought of as an actual reflex that was coming up that was previously have been inhibited if the left side of the brain was normalized. But because there's a lesion now, the shoulder elevation is a reflex that is apparent. Where task-oriented approach would be, okay, there's a lesion on the left side of the brain. The muscles that are still innervated and still strong are going to compensate to try to still be able to complete the task that is important to the individual, which might be lifting their arm to reach for a spoon, a cup, things like that. So the compensations are not always optimal, which means, you know, scapular elevation is going to have its own negative consequences in the sense that like they're going to get tightness and pain in probably their upper neck. There might be some subluxation at the shoulder, depending on how the arm might just be hanging, things like that, what muscles are actually innervated. But the goal of the task-oriented approach is essentially to improve the efficiency of those compensatory strategies um, used to perform the task. So for example, if um, shoulder scapular elevation is the way they're trying to reach for something, maybe they can take their left hand if that hand is... um, is strong enough and mobile enough, and they can actually support their elbow in almost an active assistive range of motion to then lift it up to the tabletop to then utilize their fingers if they still have manipulation skills with their hand to pick up a spoon or a fork. And then lastly, we'll talk about a little bit more in depth about the differentiation between the hierarchical theory and the neuro maturation theory. And the biggest thing is we kind of already talked about it a little bit, but the neuromaturation theory is essentially how those reflexes would 
you would be utilized to improve and learn movement. So for example, um, like we talked about the asymmetrical tonic neck reflex and the symmetrical tonic neck reflex. So these are really great examples of how you would utilize a reflex to produce movement and then that reflex would become integrated by the higher centers of the cerebral cortex or the brain and then no longer be needed or relevant but they would have produced a natural or a um neuromaturational experience so for example, the STNR, if you extend your neck as a baby and you extend your, um, both your arms and your knees flex, that is going to help you start learning how to move into quadruped. Now, as you begin to crawl, if you're not able to have that reflex reintegrated, you're not going to necessarily be able to flex your knee on the right side, move your left arm forward, and then keep, then bend your right arm to kind of move it forward again. Because when you flex one of your arms, your other arm is gonna flex and then your knees are gonna go straight and your hips are gonna go straight because that's the opposite of the STNR. So the STNR has elbow flexion and hip extension and elbow shoulder extension and knee slash hip flexion. So you can also see this too if the neck motion changes. So say a kiddo is crawling and they flex their neck to maybe like look at the ground, if that reflex is not integrated, then their elbows are gonna kind of flex and they're gonna kind of fall to their belly. So the best way to kind of show that neuromaturational development is if you have a kiddo who um, has some of these reflexes that are not integrated. And there is a lot of passion, I will say, around some of these integration and non-integration of reflexes. So some people believe really wholeheartedly that these, this non-integration of these reflexes can occur and that we need to reintegrate all of these reflexes, even in fairly typically developing kiddos. And some people believe it's not really a thing and it was Kind of, it kind of fell out of favor and now you kind of see it coming back. I would again just encourage you to keep an open mind um, regarding some of these theories and then also just do your own research. Try things in the clinic. If stuff is not, if you're treating a kiddo more with a systems approach, biomechanical approach, task-oriented approach, and you're just not getting the results you want, and you're seeing some things that you maybe can't really explain or don't have a ton of data for, maybe look a little bit closer at some of these hierarchical theories um, or 
treatments that kind of came from this, so Bobath slash NDT, um, Brunstrom's, things like that, and maybe take some of the pieces that you find really effective and then leave some that maybe you don't fully agree with or don't truly understand or don't really see the benefit of or have it in the clinic. And then I would also say if you really um, go towards the hierarchical type treatments like Brunstrom's and Bobath slash NDT, don't discount the other theories like systems theory and the task-oriented approach because those can also be really beneficial. I see the world as a physical therapist more in that dynamic systems biomechanical approach versus where a lot of other pediatric physical therapists see the world very much in that neuro, um, natural, oh my gosh, neuromaturational approach slash hierarchical theory regarding um, reflexes and um, kind of the NDT model. So, but I find that having a systems approach and really looking through the world in a biomechanical lens, I see a lot of things that maybe other therapists aren't paying attention to. But again, maybe they're seeing things that I'm not paying attention to either or don't have a higher um, lens to, to note that those maybe should be my primary concerns. I have other primary concerns in the way I see the world because I see the world a little bit more through a systems approach. But again, if I'm not getting the results I want from a systems approach, I'm going to pull some of these aspects of the hierarchical theory and the natural, oh my God, neuromaturational approach to have a really well-rounded practice and then as well as just make sure that I'm getting the best results for um, my patients. So again, hopefully this is helpful. It's a little bit long, but just a different way to gain this material and hopefully get a better understanding of what we're doing.